to wrap it up, I think it's entirely appropriate to quote Augustine uh, in the City of God. It's over a thousand pages long and um, took him 12 years to write it. And uh, in his conclusion, uh, I quote, he, he said the following, some will think I've said too much. Others will say I've said too little. I don't care. He only said part of that. I think he actually then went on to big apology for those who thought he had said too much, those who thought he had said too little. And I suppose as we look back over Romans, um, I hope you're thinking I've said too little, that there are places we perhaps did not mine quite as deeply as we could have. And terrain we could go over again and undoubtedly extract some profitable nuggets. But at the very least, I hope you've got the gist of it. It is a great book, a glorious book, one that Martin Luther referred to as the purest gospel, uh, one that he believed every believer ought to memorize and make it their daily, part of their daily diet, uh, meditating upon the gospel as articulated in Paul's epistle to the Romans. When we began, I won't even bother to ask if you remember, but when we began, I quoted F.F. Bruce, who wrote the following in his commentary on Romans, there is no saying what may happen when people begin to study this book. There is no saying what may happen Uh, when people begin to study this book. And I've kept that quote before me uh, all through these months. And my desire, and I stated this at the outset, my desire has been very simple. Uh, My desire has been that we would understand and experience the gospel. That is to say, that we would know the gospel Uh, Not merely as an abstract truth, but as a living truth. Hear that again, that we would know the gospel as a living truth. And as I was looking through some of my old notes, I can only assume I shared this with you. I want to share it again. It spoke to me. An hour of vigorous flossing and brushing. The night before visiting the dentist won't compensate for 12 months of neglect. Did you realize that? Now, some of us don't realize that. Most of us, dare I say, including myself, don't realize that when it comes to our spiritual health. Uh, we think we can compensate for 6, 8, 10, 12 months by a vigorous night of flossing and brushing. Now, when it comes to the gospel... Uh, we need to be consistently applying the gospel. We must apply it consistently, not sporadically. We must apply it intentionally, not haphazardly. And we must apply it diligently, not carelessly. That has been my, I've had many goals, but that has been one goal in particular that I've kept before me over the past couple of months. When we began, I gave you out of chapter 1 verses, I think the first 17 verses, I gave you a number of prayer requests. And I trust some of you anyway have kept them in the front of your mind and have gone back to them occasionally and have been praying these over the months. Uh, I prayed at that time that we would be amazed 
by Paul's exaltation of God as the supreme cause and chief end of all things. We see that throughout the, the whole book. It is crucial. And so at this point, I trust we understand that it is crucial that we define all things according to God's eternal glory, not our earthly happiness. I pray you got that out of the book of Romans, that you define everything, the good stuff and the not so good stuff, the downright bad stuff, that we define it all according to God's eternal glory, not our eternal happiness. Amazed by Paul's exaltation of God as a supreme cause and chief end of all things. I also pray that we would be humbled by Paul's unmasking of our sin. Uh, that's what we saw back in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The most dangerous threat, and I have inserted this statement innumerable times as we've gone through these chapters. The most dangerous threat to us is not the sin in this world. It is the sin in our hearts. And the sooner we realize that, the better off we would be. The greatest peril we face is not what happens in this country, outside of this country, globally, internationally, domestically, economically. The greatest threat, peril we face is the sin in our hearts. And true joy will escape us until we come to terms with the sinfulness of the human heart, including our own. I prayed we would be overwhelmed by Paul's display of God's grace in Christ. We see that in the latter half of chapter 3. We certainly see it in chapter 4 and into chapter 5. Christ paid the penalty for our sin upon Calvary's cross. It is a theme that Paul always has in view. Even when he is waxing eloquent on other things, he always has Calvary's cross before him. And he always has the redemption that was accomplished at Calvary's cross clearly in sight. And he always has this great and glorious truth that we are the children of God by redemption. He has purchased us. He has claimed us and he has made us his own. Oh, what a wondrous display of the grace of God in Christ. I pray that we would be convinced by Paul's argument that faith alone is the means by which we receive God's gift. Uh, he makes that clear throughout the book. He makes it most clear in the fourth chapter. Hear this, please, if you're not yet convinced. We do not give God faith and obedience so that he gives us salvation and happiness. There is no trade. There is no deal between God and us. It is not that we must uphold our end of the bargain. And God will in turn uphold his end of the bargain. Now the gospel is not, it is never about what we can or cannot do. It is about what God has done in Christ. That is the gospel. And it is believing what God has done in Christ. And it is claiming it, appropriating it for our own. Oh, I hope you are convinced of that. I prayed we'd understand the relationship between faith and obedience. That comes out in chapter 6. Comes out again in chapters 12, 13, 14. God changes our hearts. As Christians, he changes our hearts 
by making the Lord Jesus more beautiful to us. And the more we see the glory of the Lord Jesus, the more our hearts are changed and transformed. And as we put on Christ, we put off sin. We strive to obey because we rest in Christ. I have little patience in our day for the false antithesis that has been set up between justification and sanctification. Know that there is perfect balance in Scripture because the central tenet of the gospel is neither. The central tenet of the gospel is union with Christ, that we are made one with him. And because we are one with him, that has implications for the penalty of our sin, the guilt of our sin, that's justification. And because we are one with him, that has direct significance upon the power of our sin, and that is sanctification. There is no tension between the two. And I hope we are perfectly clear on that. A living, vibrant faith always leads to obedience. Now, I pray we'd be strengthened. Way back when I prayed we'd be strengthened by Paul's celebration, yes, of what it means to be one with Christ. That's chapter 5. In Christ, as Christians. Hear this. Please hear this. In Christ. We possess all the perfection we need to please God. It's all there, folks. In Christ, we possess all the righteousness we need to stand before God. In Christ, we possess all the obedience we need to be accepted by God. Oh, that comes out time and time again in the book of Romans. And it alone quenches the thirsting soul, does it not? If you have a parched thirst this morning for God, you know you are alienated from him. I guarantee it. Come unto me and drink, and living waters will flow forth. Oh, the satisfaction that comes from knowing that it is not about me. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is all about being made one with him through faith and now standing in the presence of God because we stand in Christ. Oh, I prayed that we would be comforted by Paul's assurance that God watches over us. We only need to turn to chapter 8 for that one. He holds on to his people with a mighty arm even when we feel little joy and sense little assurance. He carries his people, even when we limp through life, barely able to see beyond our struggles. Oh, Paul speaks to that powerfully in this epistle. Just a few more. I prayed that we would grasp that the church stands at the focal point of God's plan. That really emerges again in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15. The Father set his love upon the church and predestined her for glory. The Son became a man for the church, and he wept, bled, pled, and died for her. He purchased the church with his own blood. I do pray I have at least an ounce of love for the church. I do pray the church, the local church, is of preeminent importance in my estimation. I pray that the church becomes and is the arena of Christian love. If it is not, I'm a long way from biblical Christianity. 
As a matter of fact, I'm light years from what is envisioned in the Gospels, in the epistles. Uh, Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And how abundantly that is made clear in this letter. I prayed that we would feel Paul's sense of obligation. Again, that's chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. Mercy experienced is mercy proclaimed. I can't claim to have experienced mercy if I'm not proclaiming mercy. Mercy stirs in us an eagerness, earnestness, fearlessness, and willingness to proclaim the good news of salvation. And lastly, there were others. I'll spare you the others. One more. Lastly, I prayed. Check that. I'm going to give you two more. Another one just caught my eye. I can't pass it up. There's no way. Here we go. Second to last. I prayed that we would see the imperishable hope that is ours in Christ. Again, chapter 8. Chapter 5 as well. Our knowledge of God as Christians diffuses into our soul right now a satisfying peace in this life and a tantalizing taste of what awaits us in glory. On that day, we will see God. Our knowledge of Him will be full and perfect. It will be constant and it will be complete and it will be pure blessedness. Here's the last one. I have prayed that we would know God's power in the gospel. That's the whole book as well. He has cleansed us from sin's pollution. He has liberated us from sin's slavery. He has redeemed us from sin's penalty. He has broken the chains that bound us. He has destroyed the prison that held us. Paul has demonstrated indeed his great thesis that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's how I prayed a couple of years ago. And I trust that's what we have been praying. And I trust, I'm not looking for a perfect score out of 10 or 11 or whatever it was, but I trust as you look back, you've seen at least some changes. Uh, if you haven't, I do mean this, you haven't been paying attention. And you need to go back and listen again. I hope we've seen some change in our lives. I hope our understanding of the gospel has been enlarged. And I pray our appreciation for the Lord Jesus has also been enlarged. And our vision for the glory of God, as displayed in his plan of redemption, his plan of salvation, has uh, eclipses. Uh, anything we had hitherto understand or appreciated as Paul has unpacked it. Well, again, what Luther referred to as the purest gospel. Here is truth, this gospel, to make us wise. Here is light to guide our way. Here is hope to calm our fears. Here is joy to ease our sorrows, water to quench our thirst, and food to satisfy our hunger. And we wrap it all up today in a most appropriate fashion in chapter 16 with Paul's concluding doxology. Let me read it in its entirety. We're not looking at verses 25, 26, 27 as a whole. Last Sunday, we jumped into the middle of this doxology and we considered what it means for God to strengthen us through the gospel. 
What we want to focus on now as we wrap it up, as we conclude, is just simply the doxology itself. Verse 25, now to him who is able, that's the start of the doxology, all the way down to verse 27. Chris had it up on the screen as we concluded our singing this morning. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. It is a doxology, not to be confused with a benediction. What's a benediction? Just look back at chapter 15, verse 13. May the God, here Paul is addressing God in prayer, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That is a benediction. That is God speaking or blessing his people. We have another one right at the end of chapter 15, verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all, amen. We have another into chapter 16, the end of verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That is a benediction. Paul is pronouncing a blessing. It is precisely what I do every Sunday once I have finished speaking. We're concluding our time of worship. What do I do? I utter a benediction. And it is not my benediction. It's not me blessing you. It is God blessing you, the people of God. And I proclaim that benediction upon you. That's not what Paul is doing here at the end of chapter 16. This is a doxology. And so in a benediction, God is blessing us. In a doxology, we are blessing God. Blessing Speaking well of God. We are exalting God. We are ascribing to God glory. Oh, to Him, not me. This isn't about me. This isn't a benediction. This is going that way. Now, to Him who is able. Verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You have another one in the epistles right at the end of chapter 11, right? Chapter 11, verse 36, there's another doxology. We find them throughout the epistles. Listen to these. Philippians, this is just a sampling. Philippians 4.20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forevermore. We see one at the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, be majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. And we see one in Revelation chapter 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The doxologies make this perfectly clear. God is glorious. Meaning what? 
Simply the following. God is of infinite worth. And in a doxology, all the people, I shouldn't say all, I mean because it's great and it's glorious, but what the people of God are doing is simply this. They are acknowledging God's infinite worth. And they are proclaiming his glory. They are putting who he is on display. We do not make God glorious. He is glorious. All we are doing is proclaiming it. All we are doing is putting his infinite worth on display. We are proclaiming that he alone is glorious. Oh, he is so glorious that even angels veil their faces in his presence. Isaiah 6, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they fly. So glorious that even the perfect angelic beings cannot look upon him. They hide their faces, their gaze. He is so glorious that he humbles himself to take notice of his creation. Really? Psalm 113. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He humbles himself to behold angels in heaven And humans on earth, he is that glorious. He is so glorious that he is actually above our adoration. Nehemiah 9. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So let me get this right. Let me praise something. Let me exalt something which is actually far above my capacity to praise and exalt. He is that glorious. And so even when I am ascribing to him glory, I am falling light years short of who he actually is in and of himself. He is so glorious that we cannot comprehend his full beauty and perfection. Oh, never forget his words to Moses. Exodus 33, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and Live glorious that even the angels veil their faces in his presence. So glorious that he humbles himself to take notice of his creation. So glorious that he is above our adoration. And so glorious that we cannot comprehend his full beauty and perfection. Oh, to this God, to this God who is able. To this God who is the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. A doxology. We glorify him by simply putting on display his infinite worth. Are you getting this? Because what I want to do now as we conclude our study of Romans is I want to reinforce This idea of doxology, putting on display the infinite worth of God, and I want to do so by taking a very quick journey, very quick journey back through the book. 
and I'm going to take you by the hand, and we're going to stop in a half dozen places, and I want us to come face to face with this glory. Our first stop is in Romans 9, and what I want us to observe is this, a prepared glory. Romans 9, a prepared glory. Follow as I read in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Prepared glory. It is paradigm shifting. The moment we understand man does not stand nor reside at the center of things. It is completely paradigm shifting. The moment we grasp that God is at the center of everything. That everything revolves around God. And this God, this infinitely excellent God, who is above all succession of time, the Alpha and the Omega, without beginning, without end, who is above time, who is above space, who is above and beyond the created order, this God, Father, Son, Spirit, has a prepared glory, something He, in and of Himself, determined before Him to put His glory on display and to do that through human beings. Oh, my friend, do you understand this world? Your life is simply a stage. And you're not the main actor. I'm not even sure you got a trivial part. It is the stage on which God has chosen to display His glory. And He has chosen to do so through an eternal plan of redemption. And he will be glorified in the damned. He will. And he will be glorified in the saved. He will be glorified in vessels prepared for destruction. And he will be glorified in vessels prepared for mercy. Oh, a prepared glory. It defines human reality. It defines human experience, human history. It defines and determines exactly where we are going. That God, this God has a plan to put his glory on display. Second stop is way back in chapter 1. An exchanged glory. Chapter 1. Follow as I read in verse 20 for context. For his, that is God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals 
and reptiles. Now, before you start thinking to yourself, hallelujah, thankfully, I never went into the backwoods, cut down a tree, and uh, dragged it out of there, and uh, fashioned for myself some little image, and overlaid it with gold, and prostrated myself before it. And so I've never exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Before we draw that conclusion, which is, by the way, completely erroneous, I would take you back to the garden and understand exactly what happened in the garden. Exactly what the offering was that Satan made to Eve and by extension to Adam. In the day, in the day you eat this fruit. What was it? What was it? You will be like God. Oh, it has a nice sound to it. There is something of that idea, notion, dare I say, desire, to be more definitive, desire that echoes in the soul of man. I would be God. I would stand at the center of reality. I would determine what's good for me and my best interest. I will live as I deem best. And in so doing, what have we done? We have exchanged the glory of God for what? An image in the form of? ourselves and we have become enamored with ourselves and here we get to the very heart the very essence of sin that we it is original sin folks and we are all guilty of it and our lives testify to it from beginning to end we would be God and we have exchanged his glory let me take you to a third place a third stop a despised glory over into chapter 3. Quick, pithy statement. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a tremendous verse for countless reasons. Here's one. It defines sin so accurately precisely, unequivocally for us. All have sinned. In our day, people hear that word sin. They think of the sexually immoral. They think of the hardened criminal. They think of the calloused murderer. No, here sin is defined for us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To sin is to fall short of God's glory. To sin is to do, Paul is saying here, exactly what he has just described back in chapter 1. Oh, this again is just, oh, it, it removes the blinders when we grasp this. We do not think of the average hardworking, law-abiding, family-loving, flag-waving person as a sinner. Because we equate sin again, yes, the sexually immoral, the deviant, the criminal, the murderer, etc., etc., etc. No, to sin is to fall short of the glory of God. We were created in the image of God. Being created in the image of God, we were given a mandate and a purpose which was very simple. It was to glorify God. It was to mirror His likeness. It was to put on display His glory. What have we done? We have exchanged the glory of God and we've made ourselves the center of things. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
That is what we are guilty of. Oh, I know it pains people to hear it. I've taken flack in the past for saying it, and I open myself up potentially for taking flack today. You take the 93-year-old woman. There she is, sweet little thing. Lived, lived a, a, a nice life, married, faithful to her husband who's now gone for 50, 60 years. And uh, involved in the community, taught school, raised seven kids, lived in a day where she did, you know, didn't have indoor plumbing, all these sorts of things, and just sweet. Never heard a, a, a bad word come out of her mouth. She's never even looked at anyone wrong. She's attended her local church faithfully all of her life and uh, given money to the church, the, the Rotary Club, this, that, and the next thing. But this woman has never come to grips with her sinfulness and her need for a savior. She is a sinner. She has fallen short of the glory of God. And even that sweet little old thing has exchanged the glory of God for an image in the form of her own likeness. And she has bathed herself in religiosity and convinced herself that all is well with God and man, yet she is as lost as that man who sits there on death row awaiting his final sentence for having murdered someone. Do we understand the true nature of sin, the essence the very fiber when we just get beyond all of the externals and get to the heart of it, here it is. We fall short of God's glory and we have exchanged it for something else and we live accordingly. Bad life, good life, it makes no difference. It is repugnant in the sight of God because anything that is not done for His glory, the reason He made us, Anything that is not done out of a white, hot, burning love for him falls well short and is but filthy rags in his sight. Now we start to see the need for a Savior, don't we? We start to see our condition before a holy God. And so let me take you to a fourth place. Maybe you've guessed it already. Maybe you just even just get there. Enough of that. Get there. Chapter 5. And here's our fourth stop, a restored glory. We have a prepared glory, an exchanged glory, a despised glory, now a restored glory. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Oh, look, it just builds, it just builds here. Since we have been justified by faith, okay, I recognize my need for a Savior, I recognize the Lord Jesus has borne the penalty for my sin upon Calvary's cross, that I exchanged God's glory, I despised God's glory, I've fallen short of God's glory. The Lord Jesus came and he glorified his Father from beginning to end. He took my sin upon himself at Calvary's cross. He bore the penalty for my sin in his body on the tree. I have believed in the Lord Jesus. I'm now justified by faith. He, he has changed my sentence from guilty to justified, changed my verdict from, from, from death to life. Now what do we have? We have peace with God. Meaning what? Formerly we did not have peace. All was not well. All was far from well. Now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained now access 
to this unapproachable God, this glorious God, access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Here it is. Wait for it. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so that which we had exchanged, that which we had fallen short of and downright despising as a matter of fact, it now becomes the object of our exaltation. Oh, that's marvelous. That is a mind-blowing transformation. This exaltation in the glory of God. And I can only think, I was watching one this past week, and you get these little clips sometimes on Facebook or I don't know, and I pay no attention to any of them, but there, there's this one group of clips I just can't turn away from and I need to watch. You know what they are? They're those little clips, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, maybe sometimes a little longer, of mom, dad, serviceman, servicewoman who's been off for six months, eight months, maybe, maybe longer, maybe a year, and they finally come home, their loved ones don't know. You've seen these? Come on, I'm not the only one. Their loved ones don't know they've come home. And then the surprise. Dad's playing catcher, I don't know, when somebody's, you know, they call the son out on the, on the college uh, baseball game to throw out the, the, the first pitch. And he throws it out not realizing it's dad behind the plate wearing the mask. And then dad reveals and there's tears and there's all this joy. Or there's that little girl sitting in her classroom just paying attention to, to her teacher. And all of a sudden dad, mom, has been eight months, walks in. That is exaltation, is it not? You've seen them. That, 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 that's nothing in comparison to what Paul's describing here. That, that now, oh, that this radical transformation where once we were God's enemies, guilty of treason, downright rebellion, I don't care how good of a life you've lived, downright rebellion toward God, living for ourselves, and God, yes, maybe we give him a place and we, and we yeah, I show up at church every so often. And yeah, I, 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 you know, I have nice thoughts about God. I'm not opposed to God. But basically, when it all boils down to it, we live however we please. And we're doing whatever we really want. And even we'll twist God to fit so that we're able to do whatever we want. And manipulate the Bible and twist the Bible and twist things. All of this revealing what? That we have this basic ailment, enmity to God. Oh, but this transformation, when we come to our senses, and that's what it is, folks. Unbelievers are delusional. They are delusional. And we were delusional. But when we came to our senses, and finally understood who we are in the sight of God, and then brought face to face with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and this wonderful historical fact that he gave himself for sinners upon Calvary's cross. And we heard this great invitation, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And we ran and we believed and in him what happened? We were justified. We then had peace. We obtained access and now here's who we are. We rejoice. We exult in hope of the glory of God. It is a restored glory. Next step. Stop. Number five. A declared glory. Go back to chapter four. As we exult in the hope of the glory of God, who he is, his excellencies, the glory of his power. I mean, who is this God? His unrivaled, unmatched wisdom. 
His sovereign rule over all things. His mercy and compassion towards penitent sinners who believe in the Lord Jesus. We declare his glory, a declared glory. How? Three ways. Paul points us to these just quickly. Here's the first, chapter 4, verse 20. We glorify God by trusting him. The reference is to Abraham. God has given him his promise concerning a son. What do we read in the 20th verse? No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. Glory to God, how? By trusting God. By understanding who God is. By acknowledging who God is. By receiving the promise of God. If this is what God has promised. If this is what God has said. And this is who God is. I am going to trust him. Oh, trust, faith in the living God. Declares his excellencies, his glory. Oh, go all the way over to chapter 15. We glorify God by praising him, Paul says. This is the second way. Real quick. Chapter 15, verse 6. What do we read there? Actually, back into verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify, glorify with one voice, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so not only do we glorify Him by trusting Him, we glorify Him by praising Him, His vocal one voice. And now here's the third way, it's in the following verse. We glorify Him by obeying Him. Therefore, welcome one another. Paul has given this command as to how we are to conduct ourselves in the church of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So do you want to bring glory to God? Do you want to put his infinite worth on display? Here's how you do it. It's very simple. Trust him. Trust him. Praise him. And obey him. When I trust him, I am declaring that he alone is powerful. When I praise him, I am declaring that he alone is Good. And when I obey him, I am declaring that he alone is wise. Those are the big three, folks. Power, goodness, and wisdom ascribe glory to our God. Here's how you do it. Trust what he has said. Obey what he has said. And praise him for who he is. Here's the sixth and final stop brings us right back to where we began, chapter 16, ascribed glory. Now to him who is able, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ, amen. J.I. Packer wrote the following, every Christian's life purpose must be to glorify God. This is the believer's official calling. Everything we say, everything we do, 
All our obedience, all our relationships, all the use we make of our gifts, talents, opportunities, all our enduring of adverse situations and human hostility must be so managed as to give honor and praise for his goodness to those on whom he sets his love. Oh, that is such a fitting conclusion to this epistle. That when it's all said and done, as we come to the end, are we people who ascribe glory to God? Are we people who understand what is his eternal purpose, his glory? Do we understand and remember what was our very predicament before he saved us and exchanged glory, a despised glory? Do we get who we really now are in the Lord Jesus Christ and find ourselves exulting in that glory? Does that exaltation spill over into life whereby we glorify him by praising him, by obeying him, by trusting him? Oh, that's what this doxology means. To him, I want to glorify God. To him who is able. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. A most fitting conclusion, and we're going to sing it in a few moments. The words of Fanny J. Crosby, she wrote in that well-known hymn, To God be the glory, great things He has done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life, an atonement for sin. And open the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. Our Father, we do ascribe all glory and dominion and power and praise to you this day. For you alone are worthy. You are incomparable in power and wisdom and goodness. For that matter, you are incomparable in sovereignty and righteousness and faithfulness and grace and mercy. Who is like you in heavens above or on the earth below? The resounding answer is no one. Nothing can be compared to you. Our Father, we thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus, that yes, through him you might save us, and through him you might bring us into fellowship with yourself, whereby we might commune with God triune, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so receive our thanks and praise this day as we offer it in Christ's most worthy name. Amen.